Hello, Probable Causation listeners. Before we get started today, I want to encourage you to support the show on Patreon. For just $5 or $10 per month, you get access to exclusive bonus content, such as interviews with book authors, hosted by David Isle, and bonus segments with the scholars I interview on the show, talking about their background and life as a researcher. Plus, you'll know that your contributions help keep the show running, something for which the entire team is grateful. To subscribe, go to patreon.com slash causation. There's also a link on our website. Thank you in advance for your support. Now on to today's show. Hello and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Jeremy West. Jeremy is an assistant professor of economics at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for hosting me, Jen. We're going to talk today about your work on racial bias in policing. To set the stage for us, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Absolutely. So I'm interested more broadly in questions of how we as societies can design and implement public policies that can basically more effectively improve the lives of people around the world. And actually, most of my research is studying environmental economics and kind of public policy questions in that arena. And I became interested in this uh, great topic of racial bias and policing in a kind of completely indirect way. Um, So just as a kind of how I got started on this, I was collecting data from multiple states on automobile crashes for a, a project related to fuel economy and actually realized this setting is a nearly perfect one to examine some questions related to police officer behavior. And I've actually learned quite a lot myself about this fascinating area of research along the way. Great. Yeah. So your paper is titled Racial Bias in Police Investigations. This is a super important and policy relevant topic, obviously. Uh, so I'm excited you're here to tell us about your research. There's lots of public conversation about whether police treat black civilians differently than they do white civilians, for instance. Um, And this conversation has become more urgent in the wake of events like Ferguson and the posting of videos of African-American men who were killed by police, apparently unnecessarily. But quantifying the effect of race is hard. Um, So racial disparities in outcomes like arrests or use of force are hard enough to show. That depends on being able to get the necessary data, which aren't always available, But those disparities aren't necessarily driven by what economists would refer to as bias or discrimination. So talk us through this distinction a bit. What do economists mean when they're trying to measure bias? Yeah, so let me just first be clear about what I mean by race, since that's also a pretty loaded term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and just to be upfront that I'm using this purely in the societal uh, sense, not a biological or genetic or hereditary characteristic um, per se. And and actually the data that we'll discuss later actually just classify individuals already as being white, black, or Hispanic slash Latinx. So that's how I'm very loosely using the word race. Um, To your question on bias, so to economists, bias is really about decision makers, which would be police officers in this case, intentionally choosing to treat some people differently. And this could be favorably, this could be unfavorably, but intentionally choosing to treat people differently beyond what's directly supported by the evidence. So we could contrast this with something like treating people differently because there's a strong evidence base for doing so. So the more formal economic speak is we call these mechanisms either statistical discrimination um, or some preference or taste-based discrimination on the part of the decision maker. 
for treating individuals differently. So one analogy might be political bias. Say a television viewer is less inclined to believe the claims of a particular candidate because that candidate has a history of documented falsehoods. That's probably a reasonable type of statistical discrimination based on prior evidence. In contrast, if the viewer just doesn't believe that candidate because of their political party affiliation, that would be preference-based discrimination. So uh, for police officers, treating different people differently is almost certainly a good thing in some cases. Like if somebody's pulled over and they smell very strongly of drugs or alcohol, we'd all reasonably encourage that police officer to test that driver more often for a DUI. But in contrast, if somebody's pulled over and they just happen to be black, that alone is probably not something that most people would encourage uh, uh, changing the likelihood of testing for a DUI. And the challenge, of course, is that individuals' personal characteristics and, and their likelihood of guilt could be correlated. For example, a young male driver is probably more likely to be carrying contraband than, say, a middle-aged woman, and separating out what's bias on the part of the police officer, the decision maker here, from um, what's just simply good old-fashioned policing is really the empirical challenge. Yeah, so let's talk more about the empirical challenges to studying this issue. Um, so as you've very nicely described, tests for racial bias can be thought of as testing for the causal effect of a civilian's race on the outcomes of some police interaction, that is to what extent outcomes differ solely due to their race rather than their behavior or some other factor police might be considering. So this puts us firmly in the land of causal inference, familiar territory on the show. Um, so what are the primary hurdles to testing for racial bias in this setting? There's really one primary hurdle here, or one flavor of, of hurdle, and kind of multiple flavors, I guess, of the same hurdle, which is that we as researchers only observe the decisions that were actually made by police officers for encounters that actually happened. Um, and so nearly all the academic literature examining police bias is using data from either traffic stops or stop and frisk or some setting in which officers have at some margin determined which individuals uh, end up in the data set. To, to put it that way. Um, so, for example, if an officer decides not to stop a driver or pedestrian, then this possible kind of quote encounter is never observed. It doesn't exist. And so that makes tests for racial bias kind of complicated because of this potentially important selection of which individuals, which encounters end up in the data. Um, and so prior empirical work has tried to overcome these selection bias concerns by making either statistical assumptions about the distribution of unobserved encounters um, or kind of relying on some kind of clever instruments in, in certain contexts. But ultimately, this means that the subsequent analysis is only going to be as credible as the assumption. And these modeling assumptions are ultimately difficult or impossible to test about kind of which encounters did or did not end up in the data set. And this could substantially affect then our ability as researchers to accurately quantify what is actually policing bias. So before this study, what had we known about the presence and magnitudes of racial bias in policing? Oh, boy. Uh, so this is a very <laughs> extensive literature. I, I mean, as you m mentioned earlier, kind of a very important uh, and socially um, relevant and, and pressing topic. And so kind of broad literature with really prior conclusions kind of all over the map as far as what people have found in this uh, in this area of work. Um, so one of the pioneering papers in this literature uh, is by John Knowles, Nicola Persico, and Petra Todd uh, in 2001, um, looking at traffic stops and kind of modeling this objective of police officers. And they actually find no bias against racial minorities in traffic stops. Um, later work by uh, Shimena Anwar and Hanming Feng in uh, 2006 and Kate Antonovich and Brian Knight in 2009 kind of brings more mixed evidence to this question, but I should mention there have been many, many related studies kind of all over the place. Um, there's also an interesting branch of this literature. So 
this kind of selection bias of who who's in the data set being a very um, well acknowledged concern. There's this interesting branch of the literature that's using this clever natural experiment that's been called the veil of darkness. So the basic idea here is that officers can determine a driver's race just before the sun sets, but at least have a much harder time determining a driver's race through the windshield or whatever after the, the sun is set. So this any difference in stop frequencies by driver race just before versus just after this veil of darkness closes uh, can provide some nice identification for bias. And uh, I can mention a couple leading papers using this technique, uh, one by Jeffrey Grogger and, and Greg Ridgway in 2006, and then some more recent work by um, Bill Horace and Sean Rowland in 2016. But even this technique has been shown to have some uh, rather concerning shortcomings. Um, there's a paper by Jesse Kalinowski, Stephen Ross, and Matt Ross in 2017 that um, kind of shows some, some concerns where drivers might change their behavior in a way that makes this veil of darkness test uh, perhaps less credible. And so, as you might also expect now, uh, these studies also find mixed evidence as far as the actual conclusion and kind of collectively as a, as a body, this literature provides really no clear overall conclusions about police officer intentional uh, treatment of individuals differently. And of course, there's a much broader literature on racial bias in the criminal justice system. And I didn't ask you about that because that gets us into a whole other territory, but there's there's plenty of work here just in the policing space. Um, so yeah, so you are in this paper, you're using an extremely clever strategy to identify the causal effect of driver's race on the outcomes or to measure racial bias in the setting. So tell us about the natural experiment you found that you're able to exploit in this paper. Uh, sure. So as I alluded to earlier, I was kind of using automobile crash data and kind of collecting data from a number of states uh, for an, a question unrelated to police behavior and kind of realize this is actually a really nice natural setting to test for differences in how police or test for how police officers might be treating individuals differently. So the, um, the really nice feature from a causal inference perspective of automobile crash investigations is this uh, dispatch process. So whenever a driver or drivers get into a collision, Somebody calls the police or calls 911, and then a police officer is dispatched to investigate the crash. So the important thing here is that the dispatch process is actually an assignment of an officer to an encounter in very stark contrast to the officer selecting for which encounters happen. And that's kind of what's played. The prior literature is this concern of selection of which encounters end up in the data set. Here, the encounters certainly are not not random overall, drivers getting into crashes uh, happens for, for non-random reasons, but conditional on a crash happening, which police officers dispatched is actually something I can show is, is basically random with respect to, the, importantly, the driver's race. So uh, more specifically, the race or the races of the drivers who happen to be in the automobile crash has no influence whatsoever on the dispatcher's kind of quote, choice of which officer to send. Um, and this is actually pretty intuitive if, if we think about it, because we should believe that it's going to be the closest officer, or maybe the closest, most experienced officer, or some other kind of characteristic about um, who's going to be a capable crash investigator and is available to do so in, in short notice um, that's ultimately assigned to handle the crash investigation. And this is this is my understanding as well from talking to dispatchers and people involved with the dispatch process that you know their decision of of how to respond to that 911 call of, of dealing with an automobile crash is kind of a, a quick decision about trying to make sure that the situation is addressed as quickly as possible by sending a nearby officer to handle that investigation. And so it could be a black off uh, sorry a black driver, it could be a white driver, or both involved in the crash. But regardless, it has no bearing on which officer uh, is ultimately going to be making the decisions about that crash investigation. 
Right. So unlike kind of stops out on the street in the real world or something like that, unrelated to crashes, the police officer doesn't have a chance to sort of look at the vehicle or the person and decide whether or not they want to be the person who goes to the scene. It's made completely independent of them. Um, so yeah, so talk a bit more about how you use that natural experiment to to measure racial bias here. So this is essentially a difference in difference design. So walk us through that difference in difference. Right. So, uh, so we have this dispatch of the officer. Uh, as you mentioned, kind of the nice feature is that the officer's decisions um, are ones that are made after the encounter is initiated. The officer has been dispatched. They're there at the crash investigation. They had no decision um, as an officer over over the existence of that encounter, but they certainly can make decisions about how that encounter then gets handled subsequent to the dispatch. Um, so we have this basically as good as random dispatch of which officers handling which crash or crashes. Uh, so for a crash in a given area, um, it might be a white officer that's dispatched, it might be a black officer, or it might be a Latinx officer, et cetera. And so this can show us whether officers of different races behave differently. Um, we've kind of got this as good as random assignment of uh, this, this independent assignment of officers um, uh, by the officer's race to crashes with drivers of different races. But ultimately, looking at whether officers of different races behave differently doesn't directly get at racial bias. Um, and this could be just because, say, for example, black officers might be more lenient to all drivers. So if you find that a kind of independently assigned black officer is less likely to issue traffic citations, um, that could be true just across all drivers, uh, not, not specifically any kind of racial bias on the part of police officers. So as you mentioned, I, I use this difference in differences technique to get racial bias more directly. Um, and so um, this is a technique I should mention has been used in, in prior literature, both for police officers and, and in many other contexts, looking at racial bias in, uh, in you know, uh, all, all kinds of settings in the economics literature. And so the, uh, the basic idea here is that we can look at what happens when a driver gets dispatched an officer of his or her own race compared to one of a differing race, uh, while controlling for any kind of broader or general differences by driver race and propensity to be guilty, um, or by officer race and the propensity to be more lenient or harsh in writing citations. So, for example, as I, as I mentioned earlier, if black officers are just more lenient to all drivers, we can control for that in this difference and difference idea and see whether black officers are more lenient specifically to black drivers even more so than they are to all drivers is kind of the idea here. And you have data from a large anonymous state patrol agency, uh, which you merge with a few other data sets. So tell us about this full, very detailed data set that you are able to use in this paper. Yeah, so so my data agreement um, unfortunately won't allow me to name the state, but as you note, it's a large state police department. So uh, you could think of these as like highway patrol, they're called in some states, or state troopers in other states. Um, so this is mainly highway um, and more rural automobile crashes, which um, we could think might differ in some ways from, uh, say, local police. Um, but there's also an important uh, important aspect where, unlike local police, where and this certainly varies by jurisdiction. There's often multiple officers involved. Um, in investigation for state police, it's usually, it's almost exclusively single officer patrol. Uh, so even if the crash investigation has multiple officers there, uh, there's going to be a primary officer who handles the investigation and is making all the decisions and interviewing drivers and so on. And then um, my understanding is that any other officers at the scene are, are just there basically for traffic control and, and kind of managing the broader scene um, while the main officer is doing the, uh, the investigation. So um, the data that I use in this paper is this uh, very detailed data on all automobile crashes, 
crash is handled uh, over a number of years by uh, by this large state police department. And this is kind of everything you could imagine might potentially be recorded about an automobile crash. You know, the weather conditions, the road, where it happened, uh, all the things about the crash itself, um, all the things about the uh, uh, individuals involved in the crash that might be relevant, like their cars, um, their individual characteristics, like their race and age and gender. Um, and so this is where I'm getting my measure of race is, is something that's already recorded in the in the data. And then um, also any decisions that the uh, any official decisions that the police officer made in particular, like writing different types of citations, uh, potentially to different drivers. So the uh, the data, the crash data include each investigating officer's name and badge number. But of course, not the the officer's race, since that would not be a really relevant thing to record for a crash investigation. So, um, as you mentioned, I kind of merged different data sets together to obtain this. So, um, what I use for the officer's race is a Freedom of Information Act request uh, for state police personnel records, which do include the officer's race, um, and then I can merge these by the officer's names um, in order to determine which race officers is at which crash with which race drivers. And then you also have information on the cars. Am I remembering that right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so the the crash data include uh, well, the important thing that I use for the cars actually include the vehicle identification number. So this is the uh, kind of unique number that's stamped on your windshield and everywhere else in a, in an automobile. And so um, I use a, a, a personal licensed VIN decoder software that allows me to then take that number and convert it to all kinds of uh, interesting things about the car, like how old it is and uh, what its uh, value would be, which um, I'll use for some of my analyses we can talk about later. Great. Um, and then, so what are the outcome measures that you focus on in this paper? So the main decision that officers are making in a crash investigation is what happened. And uh, then ultimately, what this means officially is um, which driver, if any, to write a citation for and which offense or offenses that driver or drivers might be guilty of. Um, so in many cases, there's actually no citation written. So it's um, maybe a it's a misconception I've at least heard people voice before when I've presented this work that you know some driver has to be cited in a crash and that's certainly not the case there are you know uh, a large uh, portion of the crashes in, in these data where there's no citation written uh, regardless of how many drivers are involved um, and police officers similarly are not actually deciding who's kind of quote at fault for the collision so that's an insurance term and certainly the police officers actions like writing citations will affect how um, insurance companies treat the at fault status for the for the crash but the main thing officers are doing is determining who broke the law if somebody did break the law and uh, trying to make sure that people are uh, appropriately cited for for breaking that law and a driver could actually be cited for multiple offenses um, for example you could be cited for running a stop sign and driving without uh, vehicle uh, registration or with expired registration. And so the, um, the main outcomes that I look at uh, in these data are citations that the officers wrote to different drivers involved in crashes. And um, I can look at all citations. So for example, did a driver get any citation in a crash? Um, and then I can look uh, also at different types of citations. So there are actually a number of very specific uh, citations, like running a stop sign would be one of them. But uh, I primarily categorize citations into uh, three kind of well-established types of uh, violations that people can uh, commit in, a, in an automobile. Uh, the first category is moving violations. So this is like running a stop sign or uh, failing to yield right away and these types of violations that actually involve moving the automobile. 
Um, the second type of uh, citation is for non-moving violations, and this actually gives me a lot of traction, as, as we'll discuss later. But these are things like driving with an expired license or an expired vehicle registration, um, and things that the driver clearly uh, had made a, uh, a decision to do uh, prior to getting to that crash, not not renewing the vehicle registration, for example. And then the third um, type of uh, citation I examine is felony offenses, which is a pretty small minority of, of uh, very small minority of offenses, total offenses and, and citations in the crash data, but this would be stuff like vehicular manslaughter. Um, and this is ultimately uh, something I use basically as a, as a falsification test, as, as we can discuss later, um, as kind of these are the types of citations that you would think officers probably should have very little discretion over. If there's vehicular manslaughter involved in the crash, it's going to get much more oversight formally from uh, higher up in the administration. Right. So it doesn't matter what the race of the driver is, they're going to get, they're going to be arrested for manslaughter. Um, great. So tell us about the main results. What do you find is the effect of interacting with an other race officer on each of those outcome measures? So um, overall, I, I find significant racial bias in traffic citations. Uh, so this difference in differences uh, strategy yields estimates that indicate police officers are, are much more likely to issue citations to drivers whose race differs from their own. And to give you some more quantitative magnitude, that's about a three percentage point uh, increase in the likelihood of, of citing a, a driver of a, of a different race than, than the officer's own race um, relative to a kind of baseline average of about 45% of the time a driver gets a citation. Uh, so that's about a 6% uh, increase in citation likelihood if the officer's race just happens to, um, the dispatched officer's race just happens to differ from the driver's. And so this finding is really robust to including very detailed controls in, in this crash data specific to the crash and the driver, um, kind of everything you can imagine in that crash data set, the type of road, weather conditions, uh, driver's age, and so on, just tossed into this regression. It, it doesn't change things at all. Uh, similarly, these results are robust to um, choosing within officer variation. So this is uh, formally having a fixed effect for the officer, but really what this means is just following the same officer over time. Sometimes this officer is dispatched to crashes with a black driver, sometimes with a white driver, sometimes with a Hispanic or Latinx driver, and um, it kind of robustly shows the same pattern of uh, citation behavior. And then finally, I really pushed the data uh, far by actually using within crash variation and having a fixed effect for the crash. So this can only be identified now from drivers of differing race crashing with each other. So if, say a black driver and a white driver get into a crash with each other, it turns out that it really matters uh, for both those drivers, which uh, which uh, race officer is dispatched as far as who, if, who, if anyone is going to get a citation. And uh, I do find this bias is present uh, as far as the categories of citations for nearly all citation types, um, both moving and non-moving violations, but as I noted earlier, not for felony violations. So kind of some interpretation here um, might be that um, officers are, are certainly uh, certainly making a discretionary choice with a non-moving violation since the only way you can be guilty uh, or, or not a, the only way you can not be cited for a non-moving violation where you're guilty of is if the officer chooses not to cite the driver which, which de facto appears to happen uh, happen quite a bit and then the interpretation for felony violations could just be because these uh, types of uh, situations are, are very serious so maybe officers are not willing to uh, exhibit any bias um, when it's a very serious situation or it could just be because felony violations like vehicular manslaughter uh, get very formal investigations from uh, higher up in the policing agency. And so um, there's, there's certainly a lot of oversight for those types of conditions. So how should we think about these other race interactions? Are these in practice, usually black or Hispanic drivers stopped by a white officer? 
or is it a mix of other pairings? And I guess to get more to the point, can you, can you say anything about the extent to which certain driver officer pairs are driving these effects? So one thing I kind of glossed over when we were talking about the the strategy of the difference in differences is that I'm examining all these crashes within very small uh, local areas. So specifically what I have is a census block group fixed effects for the, uh, for the area of the crash. So it's controlling for anything that's kind of um, heterogeneous or varies across different communities within the state that the state police agency I'm examining uh, patrols. Um, but it's a pretty tricky question to answer um, how different race interactions might be driving the results. And kind of ultimately, the uh, difference in differences strategy doesn't really facilitate saying, okay, is it white dry, uh, sorry, white officers who are uh, disproportionately uh, driving this uh, racial disparity, or is it black officers who are disproportionately driving this disparity? Um, the results clearly show that having an own race officer dispatched to the crash unit is favorable to a driver relative to having an officer whose race differs from the drivers, but making claims about which race of officer or races of officers drive this pattern is it's just not something the method can test for. Um, I guess I can say that black officers are the most lenient across the board, white officers are the most harsh across the board, and Hispanic Latinx officers are somewhat in between. And kind of in line with this broader pattern of behavior, a non-white driver with a white officer does have the highest likelihood of a citation across uh, kind of all possible combinations I examine. But the uh, difference in differences method just really isn't well positioned or can't really facilitate a, a test for kind of um, absolute uh, degrees of bias. This is only a measure of relative bias in crash investigations. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess so. So there's, it sounds like there's a lot of variation here. You do have a good number of black officers, you have a good number of Hispanic officers. So it's not just white officers in your data. Yes. Yeah. So one of the uh, things I think it made into the appendix uh, is uh, using this kind of um, borrowing a technique from the industrial organization literature of showing basically the market share, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, of uh, officer race in different areas. And there's quite a lot of variation across the state. Um, it's not the case that, say, some communities are exclusively black officers and other communities are exclusively white officers. Uh, those would be the extreme cases, but there's lots of variation of kind of mixture in between. Great. Um, okay, so the primary challenge in papers like this, as we've sort of alluded to already, uh, is to convince yourself and readers that you've isolated the effect of race on the outcomes of interest uh, so that the effects you're finding aren't driven by other factors that might be correlated with race, things like wealth or how drivers respond to the officers. So tell us about the various robustness checks you run in the paper and how you can rule out some of those other stories that could be driving racial disparities. Uh, absolutely. So as you mentioned, uh, one of the major challenges in kind of claiming evidence of racial bias is that people's race is often correlated with other characteristics like their economic means. Um, so what could appear to be just uh, to appear to be biased by police officers on the part of individuals race might actually just be attributable to uh, treating, say, poor individuals differently than wealthier individuals. So one of the cool aspects of the data that we uh, that we briefly discussed is that I actually observed the, the uh, vehicle identification number for each car. And then that allows me through this merge to the, uh, the VIN decoder data to uh, have this nice proxy for individuals um, economic means by using the value of their automobile. Obviously, this is not a perfect proxy, and it would be more ideal to actually observe individuals' wealth or their their income or something like that. But at least this this automobile 
value or automobile age can serve as a nice uh, tractable proxy I can use in the data. And so what this lets me do is then run this same test for racial bias, this difference in differences estimate, um, across drivers with vehicles of very differing values. So for example, what's the estimated racial bias for drivers with really, really low value cars that are virtually worthless compared to drivers with very expensive new cars? And what I find is actually, uh, interestingly, that the estimated racial bias is basically completely invariant to vehicle age or value. So uh, certainly drivers with older cars get citations more often than new cars. Drivers with high-value vehicles are cited much less often than drivers with low-value vehicles. But the racial bias doesn't vary at all with the, uh, the value or the age of drivers' vehicles. So that's a nice way of addressing this uh, potential confounding variable of race being correlated with, uh, with income or wealth or these other measures that might ultimately uh, or apparently do also factor into citation propensities. Um, and then uh, I do some other uh, tests as well, uh, looking at things like how racial bias varies with driver's age or with driver's gender. And again, um, I examining how, how uh, this varies with other driver characteristics also shows that the racial bias doesn't seem to depend on these other factors like driver age or gender. Um, so to summarize, I basically find that officers cite other race drivers more frequently regardless of their age, their gender, their vehicle value, or the characteristics of the, the local community of the crash. And you make the argument in the paper that I found pretty compelling that, you know, one possible story here is that maybe drivers interact with other rate officers differently. Maybe they're, you know, they push back more or more aggressive or something, and that could be what's leading to the officer to treat them differently. And you argue that if that were the case, we would expect to see at least some differences across age or gender or something. It's not everyone, surely not everyone is behaving exactly the same way toward the officer. Am I getting that right? Yeah, exactly. So um, ultimately, it's the officer making a decision about whether to write a citation or not. Um, but that decision, of course, could be influenced by how a driver treats the officer. For example, a, a driver is more inclined uh, to argue with an officer whose race differs from their own than the uh, kind of this increase in that propensity for a citation in that interaction could be attributable to the driver just mouthing off to the officer more often in those cases or being more aggressive or something like that. Um, so the extent that that happens, it's pretty hard to make a claim that it would be kind of uniformly happening across driver, you know, old, uh, old, old women drivers versus young male drivers. We probably wouldn't expect that they'd be equally likely to, uh, to mouth off to the officer based on how that racial interaction looks like. So the fact that I find this racial bias uh, estimate is, is invariant to driver demogra other driver demographic characteristics, to me at least, is pretty convincing evidence that uh, – well, driver behavior certainly could be part of this story. It's certainly not um, the, the major factor that's driving this, um, this disparity in citations. You note that your results are in line with the hypothesis that officers' racial bias reflects leniency in favor of drivers of their own race rather than unwarranted harshness against drivers of other races. So what do you mean by that? So this is one of the places where having these different categories of citations brings the most value uh, to the study. And in particular, the non-moving violations are, are really giving me a lot of traction here. So a moving violation in a crash investigation is something that potentially could be endogenous with the encounter. So for example, Say a driver, and it happens a lot, gets cited for speeding. Well, this isn't like a, a speed trap where the officer was sitting there with a radar gun and documented clearly that the driver was speeding. This is a crash investigation. The officer shows up after the fact when, when he's and he or she is dispatched to the crash scene. And so um, – uh, giving a driver a citation for speeding is really kind of a he said, 
she said kind of situation where the uh, officer has to determine or maybe a driver admits that they were speeding and that's what led to the crash. Um, so in that case, it might be that, for example, um, maybe Hispanic drivers just have a harder time communicating uh, with, with white officers or something like that. And so we wouldn't want uh, or at least moving violations don't provide as clear evidence that necessarily this is uh, either harshness or, or leniency in, in officer behavior. We can contrast that with non-moving violations where I think I get a lot of traction in, in that respect. And that's because non-moving violations are things that are very salient and objective from the officer's perspective. So whether a vehicle registration is expired is something that the officer can see just by looking at the outside of a vehicle. Um, it's something that the officer is required to record uh, the registration details as, as, part, as a routine part of any crash investigation. So this is information the officer is clearly exposed to and then might use uh, in making their decision. And so the fact that I find um, uh, a disparity in non-moving violations or this racial bias in non-moving violations is uh, is pretty clear evidence of leniency because there's only one direction that, that uh, difference in citations can go. Officers can't write people a citation for expired vehicle registration if their vehicle registration is actually current because obviously anybody would take that to the court and that officer would face repercussions from that. So the uh, disparity, this gap in, in citations for non-moving violations can only be attributable to leniency or can only operate through officer leniency. You also argue that the racial bias you're documenting is due to statistical discrimination rather than taste-based discrimination. And I, I know you defined these before, but one more time for the listeners who aren't familiar with this terminology, statistical discrimination is using race as a proxy for some unobservable characteristic you care about, for instance, whether the person actually committed a crime, while taste-based discrimination is focused on race itself. Uh, so talk us through your reasoning here. Why do you think your estimates represent taste-based discrimination? So again, here, I'm going to rely uh, or lean pretty heavily on these non-moving violations. And so um, I, I should be clear that I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to claim there's no statistical discrimination in this setting, just that I think that uh, it's pretty convincing to me that the evidence is supporting that at least some of the uh, bias I'm documenting, some of this difference in, in treatment of individuals with respect to the racial interaction um, is through some taste-based uh, mechanism or some preference of the officers. And so the, the way the uh, non-moving violations facilitate this is, as I mentioned uh, uh, a few minutes ago, the only way an officer can uh, uh, treat individuals differently for non-moving violations like expired vehicle registration is through leniency. And so if officers are being more lenient to some individuals than others, then it's hard to justify that as being statistical discrimination. This isn't like uh, speeding or something else where the officer might say, you know, maybe a younger driver would have been in general more likely to be speeding than an older driver. And so even though the officer didn't directly observe speeding, it could still be some statistical discrimination, some reasonable reasonable belief on the part of the officer about, uh, about guilt for, for speeding that led to the crash contrast that with expired vehicle registration, the officer clearly knows what the truth is. And so if they're choosing to be lenient in, uh, in some cases with some individuals more often than others, then that's a pretty clear uh, evidence that the officer has a preference or a choice in, in doing so. Yeah. So I think the, the statistical discrimination story for like the non-moving violation would have to be something like, I'm not only trying to tell if you've actually violated the law by not updating registration, but I'm also trying to tell, you know, how serious you are about planning to go update that tomorrow, right? Or like you are actually on your way to the DMV right now, and I'm trying to decide whether how likely that is to be true. Um, but that's 
sort of a separate issue from whether you actually uh, deserve the citation. Um, so yeah, I think I, I am on board. I think it becomes a more convoluted story to say that this is a this is statistical discrimination. Uh, yeah, as, especially when you think of it as relative racial bias. So if it's the case that maybe there is evidence, I, I don't know, uh, but maybe uh, say hypothetically white drivers are more likely to actually follow up on taking care of that registration tomorrow than uh, than minority drivers are. Um, it's hard to see how that difference in treatment that would be based on data about or historic propensities for following up on the vehicle registration would actually vary by officer race. Why would it matter whether it's a black officer or a white officer if, it, if it's this channel of, oh, uh, some, some individuals are more credible when they say that they're going to get this taken care of tomorrow. Yeah, that's a great point. So you released this research as a working paper a couple years ago, uh, but this is, of course, an important area where lots of researchers are focusing their energy. So let's talk about what else, uh, what other papers are out there. Uh, what other research has come out since you first wrote this paper that helps shed light on these issues? Hmm. So, as you mentioned, like the criminal justice system overall has a has a lot of work uh, looking at racial bias and kind of all different parts of that uh, uh, of that process uh, or set of processes. Um, one area in particular that I, I guess I could focus on is that there's this small but growing um, recent body of research examining how police officers change their decision making over time as they gain experience. And and I'm going to focus in particular on this uh, through some self-interested reason that I've uh, contributed to this literature. But uh, I also think this is a particularly interesting uh, area to explore and, and has a lot of policy relevance as we think about kind of moving from documenting problems like racial bias and disparities in police officer treatment to transitioning towards solutions. Solutions, okay, what what might actually work at trying to mitigate these societal problems? So um, a couple of papers in this area, uh, Greg D'Angelo and Emily Owens have a paper in 2017 uh, showing that police officers, as they as they gain experience and and uh, uh, familiarity with um, with uh, traffic patrol, change how they write citations uh, and kind of which laws they enforce or the intensity to which they enforce different laws. Um, Bill Horace. Um, uh, along with some co-authors, has some work looking at how police officers uh, change the degree of racial bias they exhibit, or how, how that varies with uh, with their patrolling experience. And then uh, I have a recent paper myself that's looking at the idea of learning by doing by police officers. So, does the act of policing itself uh, as a form of experience influence how officers make choices? And in that paper, I'm actually looking at kind of this this setting we talked about is this uh, um, scary endogenous world of of Endogenous, uh, I'm sorry, of traffic stops. Um, so there certainly is this um, uh, selection there of which off, uh, which drivers get stopped. But I actually find in that paper that officers have the exact same search rate of drivers as the uh, as the officer accrues experience. The higher levels of experience don't impact how often a driver searches. Uh, sorry, an officer searches stopped drivers, but it does affect their hit rate for finding uh, contraband in traffic stop quite substantially. And in particular, uh, more experienced officers are much more likely to be successful in a traffic search. And to kind of dig into the mechanisms and then tie it back into racial bias, I look at how that improvement uh, that correlates with officer experience um, might operate through various channels. And, and two channels in particular are the officer could just be statistically discriminating more often as they gain experience. And I actually find no evidence of that. Uh, the um, or very minimal evidence that there's any reallocation of searches across drivers of, of different demographic groups. And instead, um, I'm, I'm attributing that uh, improvement that 
that's from officer experience is operating through this channel of just um, um, kind of cognitive or non-cognitive ability at, at kind of determining which people are likely to be guilty. And kind of uh, maybe an analogy here would be like a poker player as they gain experience is better at reading other other poker players' tells. Police officers as they gain experience get better at reading which drivers are truly guilty and carrying contraband versus those that aren't. So um, I think kind of a, a natural avenue for, for ongoing research as well is kind of looking at what channels might we uh, lean on or what points of leverage might we have is uh, influencing policies that might actually improve the equity and efficiency of policing. So putting it all together, the results of this study and the other studies you've mentioned, what are the policy implications of this work? Hmm. So... So one uh, one thing that I think is is interesting, and this is um, leaning a bit on the the uh, lack of any racial bias for these felony violations, is that oversight is probably very important. And, and there's a lot of literature elsewhere, um, less that I'm aware of in the policing setting, but but certainly in other uh, in other contexts where economists have looked at um, differences in oversight, like um, auditing the behavior of government agents, for example or monitoring their behavior in various ways as being a way that can um, reduce the um, the use of, of taste-based discrimination or uh, um, create more equitable and efficient treatment of different individuals. Certainly the, uh, the literature we mentioned, looking at experience and learning, could facilitate interventions towards trying to make sure that officers are uh, kind of better trained or, or maybe uh, this two officer patrol idea. If you can pair an experienced officer with a, with a rookie, then that can make that rookie kind of move up this experience learning curve faster as they can learn from the more experienced uh, partner that they're working with um, could be one, one policy implication. And then I think reduced discretion is a big one as well. So I have a, a paper with my um, with Justin Marion um, that we just finished up uh, looking at environmental uh, hazardous waste cleanup, and, and we find in that setting that uh, discretion on the part of the uh, the um, agents of the, the government turns out to be a really big factor in, in racial disparities there, and in, in how uh, how the quality of the cleanup results. So there's other other work as well showing that agent discretion is a is an important factor, and and in the case of police officers, they have lots and lots and lots of discretion in, in making their decisions as they as they do their jobs. So um, perhaps there's a, an avenue for technological improvements or, or advantages there that would kind of take some of the discretion away from from decision makers in cases where we're concerned about bias. Yeah, and just to elaborate on that a little bit, there's definitely evidence from a variety of settings, including the criminal justice context, um, that the more you allow human discretion to enter into the equation, the more you're going to get disparities on things like race and gender. So Crystal Yang has a nice paper um, looking at this in the sentencing context. But yeah, obviously, individual hum human beings don't like giving up their discretion. So, <laughs> so it becomes somewhat of a political process uh, to move us in that direction. But if we want to close racial disparities, removing the human piece from the decision-making uh, can be helpful. Yeah, although it's worth noting that algorithms have also been shown to be racially biased as well. So there, there's probably no sure. silver bullet. There's no so Yes, this is going to be very complicated. Um, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, so you have already alluded to this a little bit, but what do you see as the research frontier here? What are the big open questions in the space that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead? So uh, in my view, we have basically a this ton of evidence now of all degrees of credibility that police officers, not always, but in some cases, uh, do intentionally choose to treat individuals differently um, based on demographic factors like the individual's race. Um, 
one way of saying that is we've really uh, kind of documented this problem quite com uh, quite conclusively. Um, you know, I, I know the existing literature is kind of all over the place, but there's enough evidence on the scale in, in favor of there being a problem in some cases that it's kind of justifying a transition towards what is the solution. And, and obviously, that's the, the almost always the harder question. Economists are really good at pointing out problems. It's much harder to say, here's a really effective solution and show concrete evidence of that, uh, that in practice. And, and certainly I should say not all police officers are biased and certainly not in all cases, but there's enough of a pattern of behavior that this warrants uh, some intervention or some uh, societal policy changes, especially if it's, we society want an equitable and efficient policing, we need to figure out how do we change this behavior? Um, we talked a little bit about this with uh, maybe removing discretion and things like that, but I think kind of broadly speaking, the big open questions uh, are how do we fix this? Um, and, and two ways could be changing how police officers make their decisions, like removing some of the decision-making and discretion from the officers themselves, like using technologies and algorithms and that sort of thing. But um, uh, the other way is kind of training and education and ways to try to change how the decision makers, um, the police in this case, make their decisions without removing uh, the decision making from them directly. Uh, but yeah, there's no silver bullet here. Um, some of the approaches that uh, have been used to try to diminish bias, like uh, police officer body cameras, for example, um, which do provide increased accountability and review, have uh, quite mixed results as well in the in the research literature as far as their efficacy at, at actually influencing outcomes of, um, of concern. And, and other solutions like two-officer patrol um, have been uh, have been shown in many cases to have some importance, but these are expensive to implement, and so it's it's a, a difficult budgetary justification to, to make to policymakers. And um, I guess I'll just say overall, I think the research frontier for these uh, topics is really going to be moving from studies that document the problem to studies that showcase the solutions. And I look forward to seeing this research and, and ultimately the improvements in the world that, that come about from it. Same here. I completely agree. That's a really important research frontier and one I'm watching closely. My guest today has been Jeremy West from UC Santa Cruz. Jeremy, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks again. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoy the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is Carolyn Hockenberry with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Werner and our logo is designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.